Welcome to FX in Focus. This special podcast episode is part of Corpe Cross Borders series, Trends in the New Economy, All of the Above. This series engages in a global discussion about economic trends and how businesses across sectors and the world have managed change, and how they've adapted and thrived over the past few years. I'm Christina Markovich, Global Content and Communications Specialist, and you're listening to this week's episode, Mitigating Inflation, Recession, and Risk key FX hedging considerations. As markets shift, businesses big and small need to keep up, so there's a lot to talk about. We'd love to hear your feedback and suggestions, so please email us at podcast at corpay.com. The opinions expressed on FX in Focus are those of the speakers only and do not necessarily reflect the views of Corpay or Fleet Corps Inc. Today, I'm talking to Edward Kim, Regional Director of Currency Risk Management Solutions at Corpe Crossborder, about the what, the why, and the how of a recession, and how hedging can help mitigate those risks. Let's jump in. Let's talk about the what, the why, and the how. So first question is, do you think we are in a recession or entering into a recession? Yeah, that's a great question. It's probably the most one of the most highly debated topics in the last month or two, or maybe even three. Personally, I think we are that we are either in a mild recession or on the verge of a recession. This might be apropos, but throughout life, if I'm ever unsure of something, if she likes me or not, she probably doesn't. So, you know, I think in that light, I think most people don't think they are we are in a recession. But I personally think we're on the fringe here. We're borderline. Let's take a step back here, actually. What exactly is a recession? Yeah, so technically, a recession is uh, two consecutive quarters of uh, negative GDP growth, which technically did occur last summer of 2022. So from a pure technical standpoint, we did enter into recession last summer. But subsequent to those quarters, we've had positive GDP growth. So there's a technical definition of what a recession is, which we've satisfied, but For what it's worth, a lot of people tend to look to the National Bureau of Economic Research, federal body within the government. They don't feel feel we are in a recession. Consensus seems to be that we are in a, facts will suggest now that we are in a rolling recession. So in other words, we may not be in an overall outright recession. There are segments of the economy that clearly are in a recession. Most relevant is the housing market and manufacturing. And then the third box that one more and more people are watching and keeping a close eye on is 69% of the companies in the S&P missed earnings estimates last quarter. You've heard the term earnings recession quite a bit as well. I think that would qualify as an earnings recession as well. I think the biggest question that everybody wants answered is everybody is assuming that we will eventually be in a recession if we're not already, whether or not it's going to be a hard or soft landing or you know, a deep, long recession or a shallow, short recession. I think the jury's still out there. I think most people are leaning towards a shallow or a soft landing. And uh, for everybody's sake, I hope they're right. Yeah, absolutely. I hope so as well, that it's a soft landing. And what goes hand in hand with uh, recession is inflation. So what is inflation and what causes it? Uh, Why is it bad for Example, um, inflation might be considered more of a monetary policy rather than a fiscal problem. What do you think? I forgot to mention when deciding, you know, answering whether or not we are in a recession or will be in a recession, and I apologize. In the history of, of recessions, every time 
these two things occurred, the economy always landed in a recession within 18 months. And that is an inverted yield curve. When the two-year interest rate in the U.S., and it, Canada mirrors this as well, frankly, so does the rest of the world, the G7 world. When the two-year interest rate on a government bond is higher than the 10-year, the yield curve is obviously inverted, downward sloping. So we are, you know, we first inverted uh, last April and then again in July of last year, and we remained inverted since then. So for what it's worth, every time this has happened, the economy fell into a recession within 18 months. Separately, every time oil has printed above $100, the economy falls into a recession within 18 months. And oil printed $100 of June of last year. So yeah, I think those are two, you know, pretty important historical observations that, you know, a lot of people are assuming will, will hold true this, this time as well. What causes inflation? You know, that's, that's a great question. So the definition of inflation is when the price of goods, so there's always a healthy increase in prices every year. The typical barometer is cost of living adjustment. You know, the average growth of the GD, of, of the economy or GDP is 2% a year. That's everybody's sweet spot. So if the economy grows by 2%, and prices increase by 2%, that's a real price increase. That is not inflation. Price increases are natural, are a natural healthy part of any growing economy. The inflation is when the prices of goods and services exceeds that 2% GDP growth. And so that's why you hear the US Federal Reserve and other central banks wanting to target that 2% inflation rate because it's in line with historical GDP growth rates. Inflation, which is extremely unhealthy for any economy, if not toxic, or those price increases that surpass GDP growth. And in this case, you know, or recently, it's dramatically exceeded healthy GDP growth rates. So, you know, you've heard a lot about price inflation being at 40-year highs. Prices literally were high, you know, were 40% higher than our natural 2% growth rate. So what causes it is typically a overheated economy, you know, that could partly explain the inflation in large part that our economy was overheated because the U.S. Federal Reserve, which received much criticism, arguably kept interest rates artificially low for way too long. Interest rates basically globally, but specifically North America, in the U.S., it was basically zero percent. And the easiest way to look at that is it was literally by definition, you could borrow as much money as you wanted if you're credit worthy and not pay any interest. So obviously the incentive is to borrow as much money as you can. And corporate America did it, Consu you know, the mass consumers did it. So you just have this huge oversupply of money. And in this particular case, which is obviously unprecedented, $9 trillion of COVID relief was floated back into the economy. So you just had this huge amount of abnormal money supply pursuing the same amount of goods and services. So with heightened demand for the same goods and services, caused by this artificial, well, I would argue, excess money supply out there, dramatically drove up prices. And that's what caused inflation this time around. But typically, it's, that's what causes inflation, an overheated economy. And, you know, and in this case, coupled with artificial mass amounts of excess liquidity or money supply printed by the Federal Reserve, all that money had to find a home, drove up prices across the board, including the stock market. I think that you captured it very well. And switching gears now to the why factor, what sorts of factors are typically associated with currencies, either strengthening or weakening against other currencies? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's probably the most commonly asked question I field from my clients. Your textbook definition is, so unlike other asset classes, like you know, individual stocks, gold, you know, oil, bonds, currencies are quoted in pairs. 
So if clients want to buy euro, they got to sell dollar. You know, so when, when you look at exchange rates, you're looking at the euro to the U.S. dollar exchange rate. So what makes the euro dollar, for example, go higher or lower, or dollar cat for that matter? Within, the, within that currency pair value, the currency with the higher base interest rate or you know, the higher yields is historically rewarded. If the U.S. dollar is paying an interest rate of 3% and the euro is paying 1%, that interest rate differential, the difference between those two interest rates, both present and forecasted, generally is one of the key macro drivers to whichever way that currency moves. Now, so much of 2022 saw the dollar, U.S. dollar rally dramatically across the board against all the major part economies out there. It was highly publicized. The U.S. dollar rallied 10 to 30 percent. The primary driver was the U.S. Federal Reserve finally recognizing and acting on aggressively increasing interest rates at a higher pace than the European Central Bank and most other central banks. So with the U.S. base interest rate increasing at a higher you know, percentage than these other central banks, that caused the market to buy U.S. dollars. You know, naturally so. As an investor, you want to purchase the highest yielding asset. And that was definitely one part of, of the dollar increasing in value. With the dollar, it's unique to the dollar and some other currencies, but primarily the dollar, under times of duress or when the markets panic and sell off violently, like the equity markets did last year, for much of last year, the U.S. dollar also has a status of a safe haven. So dollar was rallying on its own from the higher interest rate. So when the, when the equity markets sold off dramatically, people you know, would sell their equities both foreigners and local people, and they would buy the U.S. dollar, primarily to buy U.S. dollar bonds or, you know, U.S. dollar fixed income. It's a safe haven. So you, you had what they call safe haven buying under times of duress, which further strengthened the U.S. dollar. That was a story for much of 2022. And then during the last, you know, the last month or so of 2022, when the Federal Reserve came out and said they may be done they, they may finish uh, hiking interest rates sooner than the market had anticipated, or they became less, you know, more dovish, or they would be less aggressive going forward with higher interest rates. You saw equity markets rally, and the same logic applies. The market had to readjust. They had factored in a certain level of interest rate on the U.S. dollar going forward, so they purchased it aggressively. And once the Fed signaled that those interest rates may not be ultimately as high as we thought they would be, the market sold off, you know, sold the dollar. And you saw the dollar sell off and you saw the euro rally, you saw dollar CAD, you know, the Canadian dollar rally. So to answer your question, the key macro driver for currency, the key, historically speaking, the key macro driver for currency valuation are interest rate, are interest rates, but more specifically, interest rate differentials between whichever currency pair you're looking at, i.e. euro to the dollar or dollar to CAD or, you know, dollar to the Canadian dollar. So that explains why everyone was rushing to buy those U.S. dollars then. Okay, thank you. How do uh, higher interest rates typically affect the currency market in general? It, depending on which economist you ask, if you ask them, what's the single most important variable in any economy? Most would say interest rates. The short answer to your question is, you know, again, it, it's interest rates. It's a much deeper and larger question, I think, and therefore answer. You know, so when, you know, if you look at, if you look, obviously we all know economies cycle. They grow for a certain amount of years, they plateau, and then they come back down, they correct, they go back up. So the economy is just one large cycle. That cycle arguably is follows the interest rate cycle. 
looking at recent economic activity, it makes sense. The U.S. economy was doing very, very well before COVID. Interest rates were historically low. One would argue the low historical rates pre-COVID for several years, interest rates were very low. Money was cheap. Corporations were borrowing. Consumers were borrowing. Corporations were investing in capital expenditure. You know, they were investing in, in, into their businesses, hiring more people. Individuals with low interest rates, basically zero interest rates, were borrowing more to buy homes, to buy cars, to buy, you know, other one, one you know, big ticket items, if you will. So that spurred a great deal of economic activity. Again, that was sparked by low interest rates. It was very cheap to borrow money. So the economy grew very health, uh, at a very healthy rate. Before COVID hit, the Fed had to start thinking about increasing interest rates because that's the only way you can really, you know, for the most part, it's the only way economically to slow an economy down. Money's too cheap. Prices are exceeding natural, you know, our, our annual GDP growth. We need to slow the economy down. So we need to slow down the degree to which people are borrowing money. So they increase interest rates. So now if you're intuitive about it, as the economy, you know, as the U.S. was trying to increase interest rates pre-COVID, that prompted people to buy the dollar, thinking that, okay, the dollar will increase in value as, as the Fed is increasing interest rates because the economy is so robust and healthy. So the investor world thought the, the U.S. economy is doing great. Interest rates are climbing. Let's start buying the dollar. So interest rates really do move currency markets. But more importantly, understanding the whole picture, I think, is important. So now what happened last year was with this high inflation resulting in the robust economy that preceded the inflation, the Fed had to increase interest rates again, furthermore, and that created the dollar to rally. So in other words, as the economy grows, interest rates rise, the currency rises in value. Conversely, when economies are in a recession, interest rates are typically decreased to help spur economic recovery. That currency tends to weaken in value as well. So health of the economy combined with higher interest rates equals a higher currency or sluggish economy leading to lower interest rates leads to a lower currency value, relatively speaking. Why has the USD often gained against other currencies when the stock market was going down? And similarly, why has the USD often weakened against other currencies during stock market rallies? It is counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive to most, to be honest with you. In a vacuum, when things are going well, to your point, you know, if the economy is doing well, US equities are doing well, why is the dollar rallying? It, that occurs to a certain extent. And it's also, th this time around, it was a function of the cheap U.S. dollar. I don't want to get too granular, but, you know, during the dot-com bubble, a long time ago in the 2000s, one of the, one of the, you know, and this goes to the point where the cause and effect of each recession really is different. But back in the 2000s, the U.S. dollars, you know, the U.S. dollar had a very high interest rate and the economy kept booming. What's happening now, what happened in the past when the equities rallied and the dollar was selling off, because the U.S. dollar was so cheap, People were actually borrowing U.S. dollars. Foreigners were borrowing U.S. dollars from U.S. banks, taking those U.S. dollars and converting them into Euro, Aussie, New Zealand, Canada to purchase, you know, those foreign assets. But the net result was the low interest rate environment over the, you know, for much of the last decade made the U.S. dollar very cheap to borrow. So when times were good and equities were rallying and, you know, all market or all asset classes were rallying, 
the rest of the world would borrow the cheap U.S. dollars, sell U.S. dollars, and buy foreign. So the net, the net result would be a net sales of U.S. dollars, which would obviously weaken the U.S. dollar, and the purchase of foreign currencies. So that would explain, after a certain point, which might sound a little convoluted, but after a certain point of economic performance out of the U.S. and the market, the world's feeling good about all the markets, you know, at that point, the market looks to what's the cheapest currency that we can borrow in, i.e. the U.S. dollar, take those U.S. dollars, sell the U.S. dollars, buy these foreign assets. So hopefully that explains why the U.S. dollar rallied, or sorry, sold off as the equities, as equities rallied, which again, does sound counterintuitive. And frankly, it is counterintuitive. Again, and to be clear, that only occurred because the Fed kept interest rates at artificially low levels. A lot of people would argue, why has the dollar strengthened? Yeah, that makes sense. As strange it is it as it is, it does make sense. Um, and we can we can see that happening in real time, in real life. On to my next question here. What typically causes volatility? For example, I don't know, COVID, uh, if you want to touch on that, what happened during COVID? Yeah. So generally speaking, you know, volatility, heightened volatility, you know, obviously markets are always moving. I don't know if you call them volatile, but there's always a certain, you know, a certain amount of volatility in markets just by definition moving up and down. Heightened volatility or excessive volatility. It's whenever expectations are either dramatically higher or lower than set expectation. Specifically, if there's a key economic release, your, your typical ones are GDP, retail sales, inflation, et cetera, et cetera. Market does live and, you know, does follow these key economic releases very closely. If the actual release is dramatically lower or higher than expectations, that often creates volatility, usually short-lived. The significant volatility is, is typically caused by an endogenous event. Terrorism, mortgage bubble of 2007, the introduction of, of internet stocks and technology when, you know, when the tech, I think when the tech movement was truly born or created, that was, a, that was obviously an extraordinary event, but you know, it was, it was the introduction basically of a new industry. So the tech bubble, some would most would call it exogenous, and clearly COVID was just exogenous. Or they call it tail risk. A 2% probability of anything occurring is tail risk. So it's an extreme, an extremely unlikely once in a, you know, arguably once in a generation, if you're not, you know, once in a century event. That, that really is, I think, what keeps a lot of people at night, both investors and, and corporates, corporate hedgers. But yeah, I would say, you know, an, a, a dramatic, you know, an unforeseen dramatic exogenous event. Uh, and COVID definitely falls into that. So each event is obviously in, in extremely unique. They're always very unique. So I think the, the thing with COVID was, you know, not to make light of it at all. When it first hit the headlines, all people heard or knew was economy, economies needed to be shut down. Entire economies needed to be shut down. Nobody knew for how long. Nobody knew, you know, what the death rate was or any of the, of the health metrics behind it. And nobody knew when a, a remedy or, a, or an anecdote would, would be created. If you are properly diversified and responsible with your investment portfolio, in theory, you should be able to weather even the worst of storms. But for corporate hedgers, you know, it's a little bit of a different ballgame, but your every, your, you know, your normal surprises as far as economic releases, either materially disappointing or surprising. It's really these once in a lifetime generational unexpected events. And they're always, unfortunately, they're, I think, invariably only, you know, always bad. You know, it's always bad news. It's always the exogenous event is always a significant negative event. 
too early. You know, too bad it's you know yes. it's not. Hey, we just saw six sixteen unicorns running through yeah. the forest. You know, you know, it's it's never good news, and I hope it doesn't repeat itself. Right, in, right. In our future. <laughs> On to my next question here for you. Uh, what has caused the recession, in your opinion, if indeed we are in a recession? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Again, highly, it's pretty. You know, it was a very, it was a, it was a pretty hot topic. The economy was overheating. Uh, whether it was overheating on its own or the successive COVID relief, you know, liquidity injection. Either way, the Fed had to aggressively increase interest rates, and in this case, excessively more than historical standards w- would suggest, just to battle the 40-year inflation. This recent interest rate hiking cycle, if you will, was was very much outsized. When you when you see a you know significant increase in interest rates in a relative, relatively short period of time. Like we discussed earlier, you're going to slow down a lot of the economy, namely the lending and, you know, the lending, the borrowing of money to, you know, a lot of people would like the Fed to have the magical and mystical powers to slow the economy down just enough to eliminate the inflation or, you know, materially reduce it without landing us in a recession. But history will tell you they're almost, I think they're, I, I don't think they've ever done it. I think the best that they've done is, Created a soft landing, but it's it's a very difficult task uh, to achieve. So to answer your question, you know, it's just the tail event of COVID created this incredible, you know, this truly unknown and exogenous event. The, all the central banks had to do that. I mean, you know, a lot of people would agree they they did what they had to do. They flooded the market with money, you know, with capital to support everybody out there, and that just created the forty-year inflation. And in response. Fed had to normalize that. And I think that's what will ultimately create the recession. A lot of people would even take it, you know, step back even further. It started with, you know, starting with the financial crash of 2007, 2008, the Great Recession. Again, we all know about the bailouts. The, one of the part of that package of the bailout was to cut interest rates to near zero, which the Fed did. And a lot of people would argue that the Fed, you know, you know, they didn't really increase interest rates th- that, you know, that much. Ever since we recovered from the Great Recession, so a lot of people would argue, I think, that U.S. interest rates have been artificially and you know historically way too low for a very long time, even before COVID. So some are saying, you know, look, if the Fed had, if the Fed had normalized interest rates post Great Depression, a Great Recession of 2008-2009, interest rates would have been naturally higher, i.e., three, four percent, five percent, and that may have very well lightened. This round of interest rate hikes, because the Fed would not have had to increase as much. So shifting sort of to the how here, um, this might interest our listeners even more. What are some specific considerations when managing FX exposure during a recession? Well, let me just start by saying, uh, you know, this might be the boring answer, but look, at the end of the day. You know, when clients are deciding what to hedge, how much to hedge, when to hedge, for how long they should hedge for, again, just like an investment portfolio, on the hedging side, clients that can identify an exchange rate that's important to them, also known as a worst case rate, forecasting cash flow is a moving target for for everybody. But if they have a general sense of how much they need to hedge, they have a general sense of what kind of exchange rate they need to remain profitable, diversifying your hedging instruments. So using more than one type of product and layering in an intelligent 
levels and staying responsible to your hedging ratios. Don't overhedge, don't underhedge. You can eliminate a lot of clients will invariably, you know, human nature, it being what it is, a lot of them, their hedging decisions might be affected by what they think the market, the currency market is going to do. We think it's going to go higher. We want to wait. We think it's going to go low. You know, just manage internally, uh, identify your, your critical internal mandates and, you know, and, and diversify and be rational with all of your decisions, which may be easier said than done. Having said all that, recession, I think a recession does create unique challenges and frankly, maybe even opportunities. Again, even in the, even in the most normal times, Forecasting cash flow is probably the uh, every client's major, you know, main challenge. It's just the further out you try to forecast, as in life, you know, the more uncertainties there are around it, the less certain you can be. So in a recession, here's what I, I, I tell clients to keep in mind. To state the obvious, in a recession, aggregate demand slows. So, you know, people buy less, people spend less. So therefore, sales for most corporates will fall to a certain degree. How much they fall, obviously, nobody can definitively tell. The deeper, the longer the recession, you know, obviously, the more sales may fall off. The issue with that, I think, valid assumption, you know, recession equals lower sales. If that's a given, lower sales in a recession, and you further assume the dollar should rally dramatically across the board because of that safe haven buying phenomenon, how does that affect your hedging decision? So for, you know, we do have a lot of, a lot of Canadian companies, obviously have a lot of sales in the U.S. So under normal circumstances, they're going to receive a lot of U.S. dollars. That means they need to sell to, you know, to buy Canadian funds to repatriate back into their functional currency. So they like it when dollar CAD goes higher. You know, for every one U.S. dollar, they'd love it if they got a dollar 50 for it instead of the dollar 30 where it is now. What's unique, unique about that is that's, that dynamic is, if we are in a recession, let's call it a deep recession, and U.S. dollar sales fall dramatically for these Canadian companies, and you see dollar CAD rally higher, the do, you know, i.e., you know, back up to 140, 145 like it did during COVID. On the one hand, a lot of a lot of these Canadian clients companies may feel very inclined to hedge up there as the rates are much more attractive. On the other hand. And we actually witnessed this. I mean, COVID was an extreme example. A lot of Canadian companies saw their U.S. dollar sales fall and sometimes fall dramatically. So now how much do you hedge at these higher rates, more attractive rates, but slowing U.S. dollar sales? When choosing to hedge, there are many different ways you can hedge, which we won't dive into now. But simply put, in an extreme move higher in dollar CAD, for example, you can lock in a higher rate using certain other hedging instruments versus other instruments. So if we are in an ex if we do end up in an extreme at an extreme price level in any currency pair, whatever the cause is, in this case a recession, you may want to have a conversation hopefully with us, you know, which hedging product out there is optimal. Dollar CAD is at a 10-year high. I'm selling dollars. My forecasted sales is lower due to the recession, but I'd like to lock in the highest rate possible here. There's a certain there's a certain hedging instrument that will achieve that. Now, conversely, if you're buying dollar CAD and dollar CAD goes to 140, that's obviously very bad for you. It's moved dramatically against you, but you want to put a hedge on. There's a there's another type of hedging instrument that will allow you to be hedged, but also allow you to benefit should the currency move back in your favor. 
just goes to the point of diversifying your FX hedging portfolio, just like you would an investment portfolio. It can, it will allow you to be hedged effectively, but keep you in a position to benefit should the currency move in your favor. To go off from that, what are some different approaches to hedging? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, we'll stick, we'll, we'll stick to a dollar cat example. A lot of our clients are, you know, Canadian domiciled, so they have sales in, in U.S. dollars. So a lot of them are selling dollar cat. The most common and, you know, a great way to hedge. If a client, you know, if, yeah, if a client says today, I want to lock in my U.S. dollar receivables. The most common and, and very effective way to do it is you just lock in a specific rate. So client thinks over the next six months, he's going to get a million U.S. dollars that he's got to convert back into Canada. He can lock in a specific rate using a forward contract at, let's just say, 135. So for every U.S. dollar he gets, he's going to get, receives, has in sales, he's going to receive $1.35 Canadian. Locks it in, whether the exchange rate goes to 150 or down to 120, he's locked in at 1.35 using a forward contract. In other words, locking in a specific rate. You can lock in a range of, let's, let's call it uh, 133 to 140. So just like the 135 forward contract, you're fully hedged at 133. So, you know, so, we, you know, if dollar cat is at 133 or 130, it's bad. It's worse for this seller because instead of receiving a dollar 35 Canadian, he's going to receive a dollar 30, for example. But if you lock in this range of 133 to one, uh, 140, instead of locking in that specific rate of 135, you'll be fully protected at 133, which again, may be acceptable to some, not to others. But if 133 is acceptable as your worst case rate, instead of that 135, you remain in a position to sell your, your dollars and receive Canadian up to 140. So the easiest way to look at it is instead of looking, locking in that specific rate of 135, you lock in a range of 133 to 140. Again, so, and there are many, many, you know, there are many different ways to create these ranges. There are many different types of ranges. There are many variations of these ranges. All, you know, what's, what I'd like to really stress to all my clients is the currency, the currency market hedging community, again, keeping in mind forecasting cash flow is very much a moving target for the best of them. The FX hedging market has evolved to accommodate that uncertainty. So these, all of these hedging instruments are very flexible in terms of how much you can hedge, when you can hedge for, using them early, using them later. But in a nutshell, the easiest way to look at it is you can either lock in that specific rate of 135, or you can lock in a range of 133 to 140. It's my humble opinion that knowing which hedging instrument has more value on any given day, the value of these hedges, the relative value of these hedges changes as the market changes. So you, clients should know which hedges may have more value for, for various reasons, which we don't have to get into. So depending on where the market is, a forward might make the most sense out of everything or a range might make the most sense out of everything for various reasons. Putting these hedges on, should the market move one direction or the other? I think that's your diversified portfolio, having different hedging instruments and placing them in at different points as the market moves. In the long run, I think you'll find clients will be very effectively hedged. Uh, how can one continue to hedge in a recession? Uh, I think with, with the recession, you know, look, human nature, it is what it is. I think the greater the uncertainty, I think the more the, the more difficult it is to make decisions with high degree of confidence, if not conviction. So recession, you know, a re any recession, especially a deep one, I think does create it's it's a breeding grounds for a great deal of uncertainty in anybody's business model. You know, for all metrics, as a you know, 
as a general rule, what I found in previous recessions is clients tend to err are always erring on the side of caution, whether it's future inventory orders, whether it's forecasting future sales, businesses, you know, individual consumers tend to ramp down on expectations. So I think the FX hedging decision is in line with whatever other business decisions they're making during a recession. So what I find is clients tend to typically hedge less because they are forecasting less, they are expecting less in a recession, which I think makes both intuitive, you know, in, in both intuitive sense as well as business sense. I think the, the key difference in my mind is whatever amounts they choose to hedge and for however long they choose to hedge for, I think it's a very fair assumption that if we are in a recession, there will be heightened volatility. These currency pairs will make outsized, you know, abnormal moves one way or the other. Just identify, you know, have a conversation about which hedging instrument may make the most sense. Assumption is you're going to put a hedge on today in this recessionary environment slash volatile market. You know, FYI, you can hedge it this way, which may be different from your previous hedging decisions, but here's why it might make sense. The market is offering or laying to you a unique opportunity, and this hedge can capture that opportunity. That was Edward Kim, Regional Director of Currency Risk Management Solutions at Corpay Crossborder. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. If you want to keep up with more news and views, make sure to subscribe wherever you're tuning in from. FX in Focus is a podcast written and produced by Corpay, a fleet core company. The opinions expressed in FX in Focus are those of our guests only and do not necessarily reflect the views of Corpay or Fleet Corps Inc. To submit questions or comments or to recommend a topic, please email us at podcast at corpay.com.